Welcome to Rapid Real Estate Radio. Prepare to be entertained and educated by expert interviews, real-life anecdotes, and pro tips, all designed to help you get started making money in real estate as fast as possible. Your host is a real estate investor, licensed broker, and coach who has helped thousands of new investors complete their first deal. Here's Gavin McCaleb. Hello, America. Welcome. Glad to have you on the inaugural podcast. It's Rapid Real Estate Radio, and we're off and running. So I figured the best way to begin is at the beginning. And so today's episode is my origin story, not unlike Batman Begins or any of the superhero movies where you first learn how they went from a mild-mannered individual to a uh, world superpower. And so, of course, I do not have any superhuman abilities just have regular human abilities. But it's kind of an interesting story anyway, and that's what I'd like to get into. And so I would like to start with an admission that I did not get into real estate on purpose. I I tell people I accidentally got into real estate and I never got back out. And there is certainly some truth to that. Of course there is. Why would I say it if there wasn't certain truth to it? But let me explain a little bit. So here's how it begins. As of right now, 2017, the time of this recording, I've been in real estate for basically 14 years. Some of that was part-time. In essence, I've had a few different side projects over those 14 years. I owned some restaurants, which I could perhaps go into in a later conversation. But no matter what else else I was doing, I was always in real estate, either on the side, doing some transactions, as well as other activities, or full bore, 24-7 real estate. So I've done both. And the idea is that I can't get out. But that's okay. I'm not trying to get out necessarily. So let's t- let me tell you a little bit about the origin. So in 2003, I had just graduated with a master's degree in public administration. My career aspirations at that point were to go into local government management, you know, kind of like planning and zoning, city government, county government, you know, any of those administrators that you see sitting at those desks at the county office or at the city office. That was my actual plan. I don't know if you've ever had a chance to interact with those folks, but that's what I saw myself doing. So whether it's good or bad, right or wrong, I think it was a valid plan. Now, to peek behind the curtain just a little bit, I want to confess that the reason why I thought that was a valid plan was because I was looking for job security, and I was looking for a good pension. I was looking for essentially, look, I mean, I'm a little embarrassed to admit it, but I was looking for a situation where customer service was not critical. (laughs) And so, look, I I get it. If you guys, if you work in government or if your mom works in government, I'm sure that you're a very conscientious and industrious employee. Of course you are. But I've just come across some folks that seems like they're just really doing the bare minimum and yet there's no jeopardy for them to get fired or reprimanded. They just have their job forever. And so to me, I thought that was the perfect opportunity. I could just have a job forever. And so, like I said, it sounds a little silly at this point, but that was absolutely my real plan. And so I graduated with a master's degree 
and I first set out to start applying for work. So that first month or so, I looked over the city, you know, different city job postings. I applied to be the city manager of Vail, Colorado, and the city manager of Park City, Utah. So those of you who are from the West, or maybe you're a little familiar, those are both pretty notorious ski communities. And so I thought, why not shoot right for the top? Why not go in there and get a job working in the city by day? And then in the afternoons, I'll take off and hit the slopes. As an avid and intrepid snowboarder, I thought this would be the perfect combination. And so long story short, I did not get either of those positions. I think that they both ended up promoting from within. So somebody who already worked for the department got the job. And uh, they had to post it publicly, I'm sure, as some sort of legal requirement. But I didn't get those jobs. So what I ended up doing, I moved back to Boise, Idaho, which is where I'm from. It's where I'm standing right now. And I started to look for work. So I started to look at the county level, the city level of some of the surrounding cities. And even to the point where I had started looking for what I considered stopgap employment. So just literally anything because I'd gotten myself into a little bit of a pickle. And so when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I was completely square as far as no debt, no money, but also no debt. I had a scholarship and a part-time job. And so between those two things, I came out of college with no debt at all. And uh, like I said, I didn't have any money, but I was good. So after a year of working, I ended up deciding to go back and get a master's degree. In fact, it's interesting, side note, I spent a year working in the site acquisition field where I was leasing space either on a building or on a bare land to place a cell tower. So that was sort of maybe foreshadowing for my future real estate career. It was kind of a fun career, but that job brought me into direct interaction with these city employees. We had to go to the city planner, the planning and zoning uh, to get permission sometimes or maybe just to submit the plans for building the construction of the cell tower. We had to work with local jurisdictions. And it was that time when I was interacting with those folks that the idea came to me, well, this will be perfect. I'll just work in these offices because these guys are super laid back. It's four o'clock. They're already gone. I want that job. So anyway, like I said, that's literally my thought process. So after a year of that, I went back to get a master's degree. In this case, the master's program was either more competitive or just less generous. It's hard to say, but I did take out student loans to get a master's degree. And during the course of those two, two and a half years, I also ended up uh, meeting a nice young lady who we ended up becoming married in 2003. And when you marry somebody, you get all their good things and you also get some of their financial history. So she had student loans as well. So now over a two and a half year swing, I'm over $50,000 in debt between the combined loans. And I'm, I don't have any money, right? Because when, you, when you're in school full time and you're borrowing money to do that, part of what you're borrowing is the money to live on. So you borrow enough to cover your your tuition, your books, whatever your fee, class fees are, and then enough to live on. 
And so you come out and you're thinking, okay, great, I got to get a job. That's the whole plan. I understand that. People go to college, they think they're going to get a job. And so here I was, a month or so out of college, and my original plans of Vail, Colorado, Park City, Utah were not panning out. So I came back to Boise and was looking for work. And as the weeks went by, it was treacherous, to say the least, because as optimistic as I was that I could get a job, obviously I don't take out student loans thinking I'll never get a job. Nobody does. But suddenly the reality started to dawn on me. The first time, and I, I don't know if you guys have had this experience, the first time you swipe your credit card to buy groceries is a, should be a huge wake-up call. Because if you don't have the income to support your daily lifestyle, then that's a red flag. That's a huge, that's not a red flag. That's like an enormous red alert button. And so that's what was happening, unfortunately. I was swiping a credit card to pay rent, swiping a credit card to buy groceries, gas in the car, everything. And so I was on a a real, uh, I guess, a a trajectory with disaster. Highway to the danger zone is what the kids used to call it. And so I was commiserating with a good friend of mine, and he says, hey, I've got an idea. He had just gone to a weekend seminar where he learned about real estate investing. And my thought was, okay, well, it sounds like a scam. To be completely honest, that's exactly what I thought because he learned about it on a late night infomercial back in the days when there was only maybe five channels. I don't know. There's probably, I'm sure cable existed back then, but uh, he didn't have it, and neither did I. And so when you watch anything on 2, 3 o'clock in the morning from your insomnia, it's going to be one of those infomercials where they try to, you know, somebody who's super pumped up and energetic tries to sell you some weird thing you never heard of, but suddenly you now need. So he said, oh, yeah, I saw this on the infomercial. I went to the seminar, and I'm thinking, okay, great. It's a scam. I'm glad I didn't spend any money to do this. But he comes back, and it kind of explains the core principles of uh, short sale, which is a real estate transaction where you negotiate with the bank because the house is worth less than the mortgage balance. And so that's what the program was that he had purchased. So he had a a three-ring binder full of PowerPoint slides, and he was kind of verbally explaining the experience that he had. And so I started flipping through, and it started to make sense. I said, okay, well, this I get this. I see what it is, but I'm not sure, is is it real? I mean, are, are there truly, I mean, is this is, are the transactions out there that meet this criteria? It seems like uh, logically it makes sense, but how does it translate to the real real world? And so I said, well, you know what? It's not going to cost me any extra to try to work on this while I'm looking for work. So we decided we would do that. We made a commitment that we would meet together every morning at 9 a.m. and start working. And so we'd go through step one, which was we got to find a list. So we had to identify where the notice defaults were. Because basically, when you're looking at a short sale, you're targeting somebody who's in some kind of a financial distress situation, which is usually signified by being in foreclosure. So in other words, they can't make the payments, they stop making the payments, they go through the foreclosure, and a fair portion of the people that are in foreclosure are also short sale candidates because their houses are not worth what the mortgage balance is. So it's not universal. There are certainly people that are in foreclosure whose houses are worth enough to just sell it. 
But in this case, that was a that was a great field to start harvesting. So we went to the county, and we would physically go down to the county recorder's office, sit at the computer bank, and copy down a few of the names from the most recent notice of default. Those are folks that have just gone into foreclosure. And then we would take that list, and we would create a mailer, send out a mailer with a phone number on it to, hey, if you need to sell your house, call this number, that kind of a thing. And we started doing this for a few weeks. And at some point, you're like, okay, we're starting to get into this routine, starting to feel like we're at a job working. So that's in some ways good. If you feel productive, if you feel like what you're doing is is work, then you feel like you're on the right track, I guess, if that makes sense. And so suddenly the phone started ringing. And people would call and say, yeah, I got your letter. Yes, I do need to sell my house. And so now you're like, oh, crap, this is a new problem. Because I guess part of me didn't even think that was going to happen. And it did happen. So then now what do I say to the person? So, okay, great. Tell me about the house. Uh, What's your situation? Just really muddling through. And then going out to look at the house, meeting the person face-to-face, seeing what it is that they want to accomplish. They just want to sell or they're trying to keep the house. And then somebody says, yeah, I guess it just makes sense to sell. So now you're staring at the barrel of, okay, great. This person wants to sell their house. I still don't know what to do. I've never bought a house. I'm living, I'm renting a duplex, you know, just outside of downtown Boise, Idaho. Never purchased property before. And now I'm going to stare at this person in the face and say, yes, I'll buy your, I'll buy your house. You know, fifty thousand dollars in debt, no money to my name, only a few thousand dollars, honestly, left of available credit to where it's starting to hurt. And so, over the course of basically the next four months, we went around this little dance where we would talk to people, and they'd say, "Yes, I want to sell sell my house." It's a great. And so, the way the way that a short sale works is once the homeowner agrees to sell their house, we still have to go negotiate with the bank. They have to agree to the sale. And so the first several attempts were unsuccessful. So we would pre- pre- uh, prepare the package, send it out to the bank, and wait. And sometimes the bank would say, oh, sorry, I never got the package. So we'd have to resend it and wait and wait. And, some, and then the bank would come back and say, sorry, we're not going to take this offer. No, we're not going to consider it. No, we're not going to negotiate. So that's time wasted. Or, or I guess in hindsight, it's it's experience gained. But when you're staring down the barrel of, hey, I don't have any money to live on, it's certainly a little bit uh, devastating. And so this whole saga started in April of 2003. By August of 2003, it's things are reaching a fever pitch to where... Uh, you know what? I thought to myself, look, real estate, I get that it's sort of an idea and I sort of understand that people are doing it, but if it's not working for me, I got to do something else. And so we had a deal, another deal pending. So I want to make, I want to be clear that it did take four months before the first deal closed, but I want to make sure that it's clear that that was in the context of attempting many deals. I, I can't remember if it was seven or 10, somewhere in that ballpark that we had tried and failed. Well, we didn't fail. They just didn't get approved. We did everything we could and the banks just didn't agree to it. And which I now know is kind of par for the course. They don't it's not automatic. They don't always agree. And so 
in the context of getting close every time, almost, 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 but not quite, I thought, look, I don't know whether this is going to work. I don't know whether it's going to work for me. I don't know which piece I'm missing here. I don't understand. And so I literally had gone down to a car dealership for a job interview. And I sat there. It was a Friday. And I sat there and and they kind of made, made me an offer to come in and be part of their sales team. And it was, it was one of those, I don't know if they still do this or maybe some dealerships are different, but at the time it was a base salary plus commission. And so to, to me, the words base salary were like the most beautiful words I could ever hear. And so I basically agreed to the job. I said, yeah, this sounds good. Um, I've got another appointment. I'll let you know on Monday. And so, of course, the other appointment was we had this particular deal that has was pending with the banks that I was hoping to hear back on. So we went back to the office that we were working out of. And that afternoon, got an approval letter. So if you guys have ever done short sales, if you've ever heard of short sales, you know that the approval letter is one of the happiest things you could ever see. Because it is when the bank says, yes, we agree to the offer, not only do we agree to it, but here's the piece of paper that you can physically take down to the title and escrow office and close the deal. And so when that paper came in, suddenly it was like, it's hard to describe the euphoria. I mean, it was literally like such a relief. Tears were shed. I mean, it was such a relief and such a, I can't believe it's finally working moment that um, I called back the car dealership and said, hey, listen, I've got this other opportunity with real estate. I think I'm going to stick with that for a little while, but I appreciate the offer. So I cut that tie. And what had happened, a little little bit of background into this transaction. So we went into the deal. We got the homeowner to agree to it. We started negotiating with the bank. And at the same time, we started pre-marketing the property. And so we already had a buyer on board. So back in those days, we could do uh, double escrow. You can still sort of do it now. There's lots of different requirements that you need to follow. And so this is not necessarily a referendum on double escrow. The The climate has certainly changed over the last few years. But we had, we had the buyer who was really interested in this property. They really, really wanted it. And they had committed to buy the property for $110,000. So if we got a discount of anything less than that, that was profit in our in our pocket. And so the approval letter came across and I want to say it was something like 84,000 change, a little more than 84,000. So we called the buyer and said, Hey, great news. I've got the approval letter. Oh, the other thing, of course, the buyer understood the situation. So when I pre-market the property and I get them to commit to the price at 110, they understand that what we're all waiting for is the short sale approval from the bank. They understand it's not guaranteed. They understand we don't know if or when that's going to happen. But if and when it does happen, they want the house at 110. So they were basically on hold, on standby, ready to roll. And then I got the letter. It came over via fax, old school style. And I called them up and said, hey, great news. I've got this approval. So let me know when you guys are ready to close. They were ready to close the following week. And so this was interesting too because, again, we had gotten close many times. Like I said, talked to many homeowners. They had agreed. Talked to several banks. Went through the process almost the whole way. 
But this was the first actual closing. And so for, for to sit down in the title and escrow office for the first time, not knowing exactly if there's any last-minute gotchas or if there's any way that this was going to fall apart at the last second was extremely nerve-wracking. I mean, I was sweating bullets there. And the title and escrow person came in. I guess she was just the escrow officer at that moment. She, she says, yep, the paperwork all looks good. The buyer came in with their money. They bought it. You know, we signed some paperwork because at that time, again, we would, uh, you know, we were the contracted buyer. So we bought it from the bank and immediately sold it to the other investor. And so we were there at the closing, signing both sides of the paperwork. And then it was done. The paperwork was signed. We just kind of looked around at each other and shook hands. Thanks for the transaction. Good news. And she says, yeah, you guys can come pick up your check, you know, this afternoon. She's like, okay. So that was the that was like nine in the morning. So by three in the afternoon, that's when the recording took took place. That's when they were able to disperse checks. And so for the next five hours, I was sitting in a semi comatose state, wondering and and thinking, what else could go wrong? At any second, they're going to call and say, "Sorry, we found a problem. You can't do this. It's not a, it's not a real thing. People can't do this." But nobody ever called and said that. Instead, she called and said, your check's ready. So I went down there, and I got the check. And now I'm staring at a check for just shy of $23,000. Now, at this moment in my life, $23,000 is not make or break. It's still good. I'd love $23,000. But you guys you got to realize that when I was in undergrad, working part-time, I was making $14,000 per year on my taxes. Of course, you know, going to school, working part-time. And then when I was in grad school... I was borrowing money but not making any. So suddenly to stare at a check for $23,000 was literally life-changing. And even still, to take that check, deposit it in the bank, honestly, I still thought that there was going to be a way that it would get yanked back. And so I waited a day, waited a second day, called the bank, hey, is the money still there? Oh my gosh, I'm laughing because you guys, it was unbelievable that you could do this. And they said, yeah, the money's there. It's a real check. It really came from a title company. We trust title companies because we do business all the time. And so they knew each other. If they disperse a check, you get the money. And so there it was. There was the money. Now, directly following that, like I said, $23,000, it doesn't... It doesn't change everything, but in this case, it changed what was possible. And so over the next couple of months, you know, of course, in leading up to this, we had more deals in the pipeline. And so that particular deal closed. And over the next couple of months, four or five more deals closed. And suddenly, I went from a guy who thought this late night infomercial was a scam to I can't believe this is working to... I had paid off all my student loans within 12 months of graduating. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have student loans. I don't know if you know people who do. I read stories about it in the paper where people are 15 years out of college and they're working their job and they're paying the minimum payment, and their student loans are bigger now than they were when they started. And so I feel it. I mean, I, I felt that pressure every day, and to suddenly find a way to pay off all those student loans within 12 months of graduating, to get that off my back, 
to pay off all my credit cards and to suddenly have money in the bank was such a relief. It was such an emotional catharsis that it's really hard to describe. But I want to tell you guys that story because I get it. I was there. So I am a real estate coach. I do train new investors how to do their first transactions. And honestly, I, I work with some advanced investors if they want to do a new strategy or if they want to you know, uh, workshop a deal that's something unfamiliar to them. I, I work with those people on a daily basis. And when I do that, I, I hear in their voice a little bit of doubt. They're like, oh, I want to believe. I, I know that there's people making money in real estate. I just, I'm not sure if I've got all the pieces. I hear it. And I want to reinforce to them, and of course to you as well, that it can be done by anyone. Now the question is, will you do it? So anyone can do it, but there's going to be a learning curve. There's going to be some time. I don't know how much time will elapse. If it took you four months to crack the code, and then suddenly the floodgates opened, would you really spend every day for four months working towards something with no tangible response until that four month mark? I don't know if I would. I mean, I obviously I did. I had some peer pressure, my friend and my partner at the time. We kind of, I think we kind of held each other to the fire because if I probably would have quit and I, I, he probably would have quit. I think in hindsight, we realized that my commitment was to him as well as to myself and vice versa. And so having a, an accountability partner was huge for me. And of course, as a real estate coach, I could help you guys as well. So that is the story of how I accidentally got into real estate. I was dragged kicking and streaming into something that I had a lot of skepticism over. And and here I am, still doing real estate. And, and just so thankful that I had the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time with the right friends. And it was awesome. It is awesome. So that's the story of the beginning. I hope as the episodes progress, I'll continue to uh, share some case studies and some, uh, some different experiences that I've had, and I hope you find value in those. And so as I finish, I want to just let you know that if you want more information about real estate investing, check me out over on rapidrealestateradio.com. Uh, also, listen, if you guys want to buy or sell a property, in Southwest Idaho, I do have a license here. I'm a licensed broker. I'm certainly open to the referrals. That's not really the main reason for the podcast. But if the, someone in the sound of my voice needs to buy or sell a home in Boise or in the surrounding Southwest Idaho area, let me know. But I want to end with what I believe is a motivational quote. <laughs> I shouldn't have to qualify it either. It's motivational or it's not. It's motivational to me. So let me share it with you. It's from the movie Inception. Maybe you guys have seen that. If not, you're welcome to go check it out. And so one of the main guys in the movie, he has this to say. He says, what is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? An idea. Resilient. Highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. And so I think that I have incepted somebody today. I don't know if it was you or the guy next to you on the treadmill at the gym, wherever you guys are listening to podcasts. I hope somebody got incepted. I hope the idea got planted that it is possible. And I hope that I can assist you in making that progress. Thank you for listening to the podcast. 
Check out the other episodes, and if you liked it, maybe tell other folks. In any case, that's episode one. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to Rapid Real Estate Radio. Please remember to subscribe and tell your friends. Have a burning real estate question you need an answer to? Visit rapidrealestateradio.com to submit your question and to find out how you can get your rapid start in real estate.